Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Tuesday, March 26, 2019, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series. In this talk, Craig Simons and Harold Holzer discuss the role that river battles played during the Civil War. Um, it's always good to have any kind of opportunity to talk about the life and legacy of this fellow, uh, Ulysses S. Grant, one of the most extraordinary figures of the Civil War, of course, and back in the news with the vengeance in the last year, thanks in no small part to the great work of Ron Chernow, who we're sure you've seen here and elsewhere, and of course, the long-time work, the lifetime of work of John Marzalek, who has now completed editing the Grant Papers and uh, runs the Grant Presidential Center at Starkville, Mississippi, of all places. That's another story. Um, so we want to look at a different aspect of Grant tonight, and uh, it's the naval side, in a way, of Ulysses S. Grant, not a story often told, and, um, you know, Grant by sea as well as by land. And we certainly have in Craig, the, the greatest of Civil War naval historians, even though he's strayed to the dark side now and written about World War II a lot. He's still the best in that topic. And um, we want to talk about Grant in the early days of the war. Yes, this is General Grant with that weird beard, which he cut apparently because Julia came to see him in camp and said that most of that has to go, especially the square look. And that's why we got the Grant we know. Well, Craig, Grant made his bones at a battle that involved at least a river crossing, right? He did. There um, it is. This is a battle that, that, in the long history of the Civil War, has no particular strategic importance. The Battle of Belmont. Very few people, I'm sure, probably ever heard of it. There were 100 people uh, uh, killed total. And, and so in the long history of the war, it would hardly register. But it mattered for Grant. Because Grant later in his memoirs wrote that all the time he was thinking about landing at the side across the Mississippi River from Columbus, Mississippi, where the Confederates had their major defensive position and they had an outpost at Belmont. And his assignment was to go capture that outpost. And he kept thinking about what's going to happen, what, what will they do, and so on. And he landed and the troops went ashore from the steamboat and the camp had You're been evacuated. Books. And what flashed through his, my mind, he said at the time, was they were as afraid of me as I was of them. And I never forgot that. And I think it really changed the way he looked at combat from that moment on. It's not just, my gosh, what might happen to my command. It's what I'm going to make happen to their command. So he's not widely celebrated for triumph um, at Belmont, but he's recognized. But he goes on in the winter of 1862 to attack two forts, on the river, and uh, let me just show the first. This is allegedly, although it's kind of ambiguous. Yeah, they're not on fire there. They're actually they're shelling. So that's yeah. So this is the attack on uh, Fort Henry. 
right. on, on the Tennessee River. So tell us about that first interesting experience. Oh, he's really leading a, a naval, a kind of naval bomb. Well, he is, but it's a curious sort of arrangement. You have to keep in mind that in, in the American Civil War, throughout the entire war, in fact, the relationship between the Army and the Navy was even more tense than it is now on the first Saturday in December. Um, there was no such thing as the Department of Defense. You had the Department of War, not the Department of the Army, but a Department of a Secretary of War, uh, Stanton famously, and a Secretary of the Navy, Gideon Wells, old father of Neptune. And they both sat on the cabinet and were rivals for the president's attention, for funding, for support, and so on. So they didn't really belong to the same command. There was no one other than Abraham Lincoln who had joint command over both the Army and the Navy. So when units of the Army and units of the Navy were told, cooperate, get together, get this thing done, capture this fort, they had to agree to do that. So when you say Grant was in charge, he was in charge of the Army. Mm -hmm. But there was a flag officer named Foote, Andrew Hull Foote, who was in charge of the Navy, and they kind of had to get together and say, well, here's what I'm thinking, and what are you thinking, and shall we try this out? But Grant made it work. His subtlety in dealing with people, and subtlety is a word not many people associate with Grant, but I think belongs there, because he could get along with them and make cooperative warfare work. That's important, right? Before he becomes the bulldog that we know, he is a conciliatory figure who can create joint operations. Right, right. By the way, Stanton has when this happens, has been in office about an hour and a half. He's brand new to the War Department. We think of him as this fierce overseer, Mars, the god of Mars, as Lincoln calls him in right. the movie. But So here's, here are the two forts. By the way, I, I always think it's interesting about Fort Henry. Why Fort Henry? Aside from its strategic position. I think Fort Henry irritated the Union command because unlike Fort Sumter, which was built after the War of 1812, this one was thrown up Right after the secession. so Well, sure. You think about why would you build a fort on the, the Tennessee and Cumberland right. rivers? The British are not going to invade there. Right. So only when the Civil War begins does somebody think, oh, my gosh, the boundary between Tennessee and Kentucky is now, in theory, an international border. We need to protect it. So these are thrown up with mud. Harold and I were on a steamship going up the Tennessee River, and we passed the location of Fort Henry. There's nothing there now, and there was barely anything there before. So they threw this thing up, and they built it kind of in a mud flat. Uh, which was good for the Union because that meant it had very little protection and those gunboats you saw shooting just a minute ago were able to just fire directly into the fort. So Fort Henry did not put up much of a defense. And Fort Donaldson afterwards, he is capturing fort after fort. How does a... This will be important when we get to Vicksburg. So you've got a fort. Yeah. I'm trying to remember this because I don't have any recollection of being on a steamship with you oh, yeah. going past Fort Henry. I... <laughs> I take your word, um, but if it's not there, I didn't see it. So are these forts at such an elevation that firing from the water alone is not effective? That's a great question, actually, particularly in terms of these two forts. And while we have the slide on the screen, the Tennessee River and the Cumberland River both flow northward. Think about that. If, If you're in a ship and you get crippled and wounded, you'll drift away to friendly country. That matters here. On the Mississippi, it's going to be the other story around. But to get from Fort Henry to Fort Donaldson by sea, you have to go all the way back to the Ohio and then all the way back up. Uh, but to get there by, by land, you simply walk across the distance between them. Now, Fort Henry, as I mentioned, is on very low-lying ground and surrendered quickly. Fort Donaldson is on high ground, and it makes every difference in the world because when the gunboats 
came to attack Fort Donelson, that plunging fire drove them off. So if Fort Henry was captured by the Navy, it was going to be up to the Army to take Fort Donelson. So that was Grant's job, and he did. So tell us about his famous demand oh, well, that made him uh, univer- well famous in the North. You know, we say this is a fort. Keep in mind, you can see on this slide a little bit, it's actually kind of a series of entrenchments, an outcropping around this landing on the Cumberland River. And what Grant did was surround them. They tried to fight their way out unsuccessfully. So now he's got them trapped. They can't get out across the river because the gunboats are there. They can't break out of Grant's lines. So the Confederate commander did a very clever thing. He said to his second-in-command, Simon Bolivar Buckner, you're in charge, I'm leaving. (laughs) Crossed the river and fled to safe ground. That's John B. Floyd, who uh, Civil War historians often argue is the single worst general of the war. That's a debate we can have sometime in a bar. Uh, But he certainly is among the, the bottom five. But he leaves. So Simon Bolivar Buckner is there, and he and Grant know each other because they'd gone to West Point together, and Buckner sends out a note. Didn't he lend him money once? Yes, he did. When he really needed it. When he needed it. So he sends out a note, and he says, uh, what terms would you consider for the capitulation of the army entrusted to my command? And Grant writes back, the only terms to be considered are immediate and unconditional surrender. I propose to move immediately upon your works, so make up your mind. Uh, And Buckner responded, I expected something more gentlemanly from you. (laughs) But that's how he got the nickname, Unconditional Surrender Grant. Which happened to be his initials, so it works out quite beautifully. Well, his his adopted initials. initials. Right, right. So, as we speak of Grant as a master of joint action now, he's learning to do this. He has lieutenants and comrades who are crucial to this, and we're looking at two of them now. So, can you tell us in these early campaigns and the ones we're about to discuss, how crucial were the partnerships with Sherman on the left and Admiral Porter on the right? There's an old line that you can always tell who's the best general by who has the longest beard. Um, So here we can see the Navy has got it all over the Army in this particular slide. Uh, The relationship between Grant and Sherman, of course, becomes legendary, and it's critical early and becomes more critical later. The relationship with Porter is more interesting. As I mentioned a little while ago, this command relationship is very informal. Um, Porter, actually, when he went to take over this command, Porter's not a wonderful personality. Uh, He's a tough guy, and he was picked deliberately by Lincoln to be a tough guy. Is and, he second uh, generation? Adam? He's second His father, David Porter, that's why he always uses that middle name, David Dixon Porter. His father, David Porter, was a senior U.S. naval officer in the War of 1812 and then later got into trouble in the Caribbean and got cashiered and went to work for the Mexican Navy. It's a complicated story, but he's very much a Navy family, but he's suspicious of the Army. And he says, I'm not going to cooperate with those Army guys. I don't trust them. And so Grant has his work cut out for him in terms of kind of bringing him around, and he sends him flattering letters, another characteristic we don't often associate with Grant, but Grant knew it was going to be necessary. And Porter had the same attitude towards Sherman, and Sherman does the same thing. Oh, Admiral Porter, you are such a smart man. I can't, can't wait to work with you. Not the Sherman By golly, it works. either. Not the Sherman we know, exactly. Right. So I just want to ask you about a fellow you mentioned before. Plus, it gives me a chance to show this great picture. Yeah. Commodore Foote. Yeah. Tell us about that relationship and how, how he well, worked with Grant in these... Andrew Holfoot could have been the great naval hero of the Civil War, but his health was not great. He was a bit older, um, 
and actually resigned his business. He was the one who cooperated in Fort Henry and at Fort Donaldson and at Island Number 10, where Grant was not involved, but was another Union success and, and was really apparently on his way, but his health was so precarious that he had to step aside. And that's how David Dixon Porter got into the mix and became a Civil War hero. But this is really a remarkable story. This is not a story about a bulldog. It's a story about someone with the skills of, say, Eisenhower, who gathered people together yeah. and was in charge and got... It's an interesting I think it's a great story. analogy with Eisenhower. I mean, there are people who are warriors and diplomats. And, and there are people who are simply warriors. I mean, you know, Patton, Halsey... And there are people who are mostly diplomats. And when you can get somebody who can be both of those things, like an Eisenhower, like a Grant, both of whom become president, mm-hmm. then you've got something. Yeah. But that's Eisenhower's M.O. and his fame rests on that. I don't think we know that about Grant. So this is a new Grant we're seeing. Okay, now we're getting to the area that I <laughs> failed in school and um, make me, makes me grateful that we have GPS. But Craig is great at analyzing maps. So we're going to begin the Vicksburg campaign. Is this the right map? Yeah. And I'm reluctantly surrendering this device. He told me I had to promise to give it back when I was... <laughs> I had a colleague at the Naval Academy when I taught there who told me once when I was showing maps in class, he said, you know, history is about chaps. Geography is about maps. But I think we have to have this map here. This is... Uh, Here's the Mississippi River, and the key, th- the key element here is that all the land to the right of the river is up when they call the Piney Barrens. It's about 200 feet above all of this marshy ground out here in the Mississippi Delta. So when we, we talk about the high ground, places like, uh, obviously, Vicksburg here, and a little ways downriver, uh, there's a, a Bruinsburg, and more particularly at Grand Gulf, uh, the high ground which runs along the east bank of the river intersects with that river. So the only way you can get there is if you can climb up those bluffs. Now, back in 1862, earlier, um, David Glasgow Farragut came up from New Orleans and actually got to Vicksburg, but he couldn't get up the cliffs because he didn't have an army. Grant's problem is he's going to have to come at Vicksburg from the back. You really can't get at it from the water. He tries twice. Uh, once he tries to come down overland, he's going to come down this way and come at Vicksburg from the back. And he can't do it because Van Dorn and Nathan Bedford Forrest attack his supply lines. And Grant realizes he can't survive transiting the Piney Barrens without supplies. And so he turns around and goes back. He says, I'm going to have to try to get to it from the river. But I don't really know how. He tries to go up. Uh, uh, Haynes Bluff here and Steele's Bayou. He tried to dig a canal right here. You can just see that little connecting line because Vicksburg sits on a hairpin bend in that river. So he figures if he can get past it, that's one way. But it, uh, it's there. Question, why, why go through these impediments? What is so important about Vicksburg? I think we should explain. That. Vicksburg is the buckle on the strap that holds the two halves of the Confederacy together. The Union at Fort Henry, at Fort Donelson, at Island Number 10, had conquered the upper Mississippi. And Farragut, coming up from New Orleans, had conquered the lower Mississippi. But as long as Vicksburg held firm, there is no bridge there, but railroad trades could come into Vicksburg, transit by barge across, and then continue on uh, to the Western Confederacy. And the wheat and the beef, in particular, from Texas and Arkansas came across the river at Vicksburg. 
If Vicksburg fell, the Union would control the river from source to mouth, and the Confederacy would be sundered in half. That's why. That's a good strategic reason. So let's okay. see what I have here. So this is what Vicksburg looked like then. Um, it's uh, obviously a, a spotty photograph, but I think that building is still there, right? That, yeah. that Capitol building or whatever it is. Yeah. The river is not, by the way. It's kind of an interesting thing. I, you saw in the previous right. map how there was a hairpin bend. It's accreted, as they say. Yes. Now, now the river's moved. It does this all the time, and now it's just sort of a... What did you call it? It changes by accretion. That's a okay, word accretion. Lincoln used in a law case. Okay. I thought right. I'd show it off. If Lincoln said it, I'm not going to argue. Okay. But there's, there's the city. And this, in equally bad shape, because it's the only copy we ever saw uh, when my pals and I wrote about the Confederate image. This is a print that survives in Vicksburg of the bombardment mm. of, of Vicksburg. Um, so... Grant goes at it from the river, right? He has Even to. Even though shooting up? He has to. Can and they shoot down? Absolutely. And, and, of course, they do. Now, the problem is they don't have uh, uh, batteries on the western bank because that's marshy and low and, and messy. But they're up on, well, on this high ground where they can shoot down on the river and See on how, troops across the yeah. river. Yeah. So who is this fellow? This is uh, Lieutenant General John C. Pemberton, who was the Confederate commander inside uh, Vicksburg. He's charged by Jefferson Davis with defending the city, and, and he takes that as a very personal charge. There are a couple of key things about him. One is that he is a northerner. Yeah, born in Philadelphia. Born in Philadelphia, who married a southern woman, and she convinced him that's where he belonged. And he went, well, of course, there are people who are suspicious of him because of this. He's not really one of us. Uh, so he wants to prove that's wrong by being absolutely ferocious in defense of the city. The other thing is that Jefferson Davis's own plantation, Briarfield, is about eight miles south of Vicksburg. I mean, it's within the Confederate lines. So he's not only protecting the city that holds the Confederacy together, he's protecting literally his president's property. So he's, he's, very, he's not going to let go of that city. So tell us about some of the complications that Grant faces, not with joint actions, not with the naval side, but with political generals oh. like John McClernand and other, General Halleck, okay. and all those who are questioning him always at key moments. Always, always. And of course, Lincoln has a problem because Lincoln has to depend on people like Grant, who's a professional soldier, West Point graduate, and I always have to do my key line, whatever that's worth. Um, but a, a professional who knows his business and amateurs who are former congressmen who say, well, I'm a leader. I know how to lead people. Put me in charge of a brigade or a regiment or a division. And one of them was John C. McClernand, not McClellan, but McClernand, who was a Democrat from Illinois, Lincoln's home state, but a Democrat, and Lincoln's got to hold the parties together here. This is a union effort, not a Republican effort, so he needs war Democrats. And McClernand comes to him and says, you know what? I can raise an entire army in addition to the one you've got. So this will be a, a new army because of my popularity in Illinois. And I will take that army and go down the Mississippi River, and I will capture Vicksburg for you. Well, Lincoln can't say, no, thank you. He can't do that. So he says, thank you, Congressman. Excuse me. I mean, General McClernand. <laughs> You're now in charge of this army. So he does. He raises an army. And he begins sending them down regiment by regiment. But meanwhile, he's got some personal business. He's going to get married. 
So he stays back to get married, and by the time he goes down river to Illinois, there's this whole army down there. But Sherman is down there too. And Sherman writes to Grant and says, there's this guy, McLaren, and he says he's in charge of the army. What am I going to do? And Grant says, I'll be right there. (laughs) And so Grant, in a way, has to come back to the river. In addition to the logistical and strategic problems we showed you on the tall map, he needs to get back to the line of the river because Grant is senior to both of them, and he makes McLaren a corps commander, co-equal with Sherman, in Grant's army. But it's interesting here, I think. Grant might have written to the president and said, what are you doing to me? How come you send this politician down here? to? I, I thought this was my... No, none of that. If the president did it, he must have his reasons, so I'll deal with it. The other thing about Grant, I mean, among many other things, is that he is very respectful of the chain of command. Yes. Sometimes it delays things and complicates things. So, okay, he's got McClernand. He's got to worry about the Navy. He's got to worry about the the trees and the marshes and the bend in the river. A lot of impediments, but I think you've set the stage for why it's important... Give me, give me, give me. <laughs> okay, here we are. Here's, uh, here's Vicksburg, right? And we see Pemberton here. Pemberton's in charge. And he's defending this whole line of bluffs. You see this dark streak here. This, this is the high ground. And Grant's over here. How does he get from here to here? The only way he can do it is if he asks Porter, the guy with the big beard, take your ships, please, sir. I can't order you to do it, but would you please... Run them past these Vicksburg batteries. That's a heck of a request. And a big right turn, isn't it? And a, and a big right it's turn. a heavy right turn. Um, but if you can do that, if you can get down here on the lower river, I will march my army along these old levees down here, and I will meet you at Hard Times Landing. Great name. And we'll cross the river, and I will fight my way inland. Now, the interesting thing about his decision to do this, it's almost an act of desperation because where's his line of supply once he does this? He doesn't have one. Remember, a year before in 62 when he tried to come from the north and they cut his line of supply, he decided he had to go back. Here he's cutting his own line of supply. But he says, if I can get back up here and fight my way all the way to Jackson, Mississippi, capture the capital, then turn west and fight my way through a couple of battles here, I can attack Vicksburg from the east, which is really the only way that I can get there. So a couple of things have to happen. Porter has to agree to do it. He has to succeed in doing it. He has to get the troops across the river. Grant has to keep those troops alive and fed long enough to get all the way back to this siege position. Because once he gets here, now his right wing is back on the river and he can get supplied again. But until he gets there... He's kind of out there uh, on his own. So what happens on the... Does it work? I mean, before we get to the siege, what happens? He's interrupted along the way a few times, right? Well, a couple of times, yeah. He has to fight uh, several battles to get there. Uh, And one of the difficulties, he's got two armies that he has to fight. He has to fight off uh, the Confederate army under Joseph E. Johnston, which is maneuvering out here, and the Confederate army under John C. Pemberton, who's fighting him from this direction. One of the advantages is he gets in between them so they can't get together, and that matters a lot. But, and so he, has, he fends off this one and sends most of his army here uh, to surround Pemberton. But he goes, he goes to Memphis first, right? No. He doesn't. No, no, he goes to Jackson, Jackson, Jackson. Mississippi, the state okay. capital. And that, so he takes, takes and then Jackson. he heads east. 
But what, what happens along the way? You've got General Van Dorn and others who are menacing oh, the, him. Well, yeah, to do that, I have to, can, I, can we go back? I don't know how to do that. You're the technical guy. Let's go to the tall map for a minute. Glad I'm good for something this is, with this device. Uh, Which one are we the doing? The tall one. That one. Okay. Because what happens is there are all sorts of, of attacks uh, by Van Dorn and Nathan Bedford Forrest and other people who are attacking him. And what he decides to do is, I, the Confederate cavalry has had the upper hand in this whole war. The Confederate cavalry, I mean, the old line is supposedly they're all bred to the horses. They all learn to ride before they can walk and all this business. Some of that may be true. But the Union cavalry by now, by 1863, has become pretty competent. And so Grant decides to send a guy named Benjamin Grierson on a raid. And here he goes. He starts out, where is he? Way up here. And he's, this is his blue line here. It's Grierson's raid all through April and May. All the way down, look at that, I'll faint. Oh, no, I'm not going to go that way. I'm going to go down this way, all the way down to Baton Rouge. The entire length of Mississippi. Um, he loses a total of three killed and seven wounded. And he keeps two whole Confederate divisions chasing him. So all of this distracts both Johnston and especially Pemberton while Grant is making this big maneuver. But ultimately, Vicksburg remains elusive, right? It does. I'm gonna, you tell us why and I, as I get past. Uh, th- this is just to show you, by the way, as we get to the period where he has no recourse but to lay siege to Vicksburg, that Craig is not the first person to be obsessed with maps. <laughs> this, this is a map of the period, um, which I find as indecipherable as the others, but I know you all get to. So here we get to the siege, the battle and the siege. So walk right. us through how we get to December and what his recourse is. One thing quickly before I do the siege, I just want to mention Grierson's Raid. Uh, you may not have heard of Grierson's Raid. You may have heard of a John Ford movie called The Horse Soldiers, which is based on Grierson's Raid. And John Wayne plays Grierson in the movie. So here's an old black and white film you can enjoy sometime. The siege here, when Grant shows up, and he's the guy, the, the army with the blue uh, units there. I always love the way they display units on a map as if people marched around in little squares. No, okay. Um, but when he got to those lines and looked at them, Grant pretty much saw, you know what, I'm not going to be able to fight my way in there. Those lines are too strong, they're too powerful. World War I has not happened yet, but that's the kind of environment he faces here. But he also knows that the soldiers, having conducted this huge campaign and having for almost a year and a half tried to get at Vicksburg, would not be convinced that they had to sit down and conduct a siege unless they first had a shot at fighting their way in. So he does. He launches an assault. Now, critics of Grant say, well, see, this is just that fullback. He puts on a helmet and charges in them. I think this was psychological warfare with his own army. He said, look, guys, we're not going to be able to do this, see? There was one minor breakthrough, and it was achieved by McLernan's corps. And McLernan wrote him a note and said, I'm on the verge of victory. Attack again. Well, he wasn't on the verge of victory, and that's another reason why Grant decided this amateur has got to go. And later on, he does go. Uh, But it becomes clear after those two attempts to break in that it's going to be a siege. And so he builds a set of lines around the outside of the Confederate lines, and they just settle down for an old-fashioned siege. Pemberton and the civilian population of the city are trapped. They can't get out by the river because of Porter. They can't get out by land because of Grant, very similar to Fort Donelson. 
and it becomes a longest siege in American history. But they, they did take a break in the winter, right? They sort of just stopped after December? Well, what they do is, is how, long, how frequently do you bombard? You know, do you continue to shell the city? I mean, there are civilians living in there. Here's one of those moments in history when the character of warfare shifts from army against army to army against population. Because you can't bombard the city without causing civilian casualties. A lot of civilians moved into the caves and so on. So when the bad weather came, some of that was, was scaled back. Right. But the siege went on for 48 consecutive days, every one of which somebody was killed. Right. And the but that begins supply, in May. I'm just saying before the May yeah, sieging begins, yeah, yeah. they sort of hunker down... It's well, just that, always I mean, odd to yeah, me that that happens. That is true. Well, it's a 19th century thing. Yeah. Um, and that was true in all theaters, not, not just here. But you're right. It did. And, and as you point out, this is May, the end of May, all of June, and a couple of days in July. Right. And Craig alluded to the caves. This gives me an opportunity to show one of the treasures of the New York Historical Society collection. Um, this is a print by a Baltimore etcher, a dentist, yet. Um, that was his principal work. It's called Cave Life at Vicksburg. And um, I don't know if the ladies of Vicksburg really moved their tables and you know furnishings down there. But what it is attempting to say is that God is on their side. Here is a pious southern woman praying... Um, in in the midst of this bombardment. And of course, um, the I'll read you a little bit of a diary uh, from Marianne Lockenborough, who writes in a book called My Cave Life in Vicksburg, shells fell into the streets like a flame of fire, making the earth tremble. And with a low singing sound, the fragments sped on in their work of death, terror-stricken, we remained crouched in the cave while shell after shell followed each other in quick succession. I endeavored by constant prayer, right, to prepare myself for the sudden death I was almost certain awaited me. So this is hard war. This is like close to total war. There's a debate in civil war circles about whether it was modern war or total war, but this is pretty close to terrorizing civilians. And, And tell us about what happens to these folks when supplies become scarce? Well, the, the problem Pemberton has is he wants to keep his army fed, but he can't let civilians starve to do it. So he has to share what resources he has, which are limited to begin with. And the old joke is, well, all the mules went first. So pretty soon there aren't mules to pull the guns or haul the wagons. And then the dogs and cats started disappearing. And then after a while, the rats and so on. And some of this is melodramatic, but it's not entirely untrue. Uh, the... Uh, rations were very limited. And and as June turned to July, it was pretty clear that it was entirely possible that people would begin dying in large numbers of starvation. And he could not fight his way out. Joe Johnston, who had a small army out in Mississippi, could not fight his way in. And so he said, I'm going to have to go to Grant and ask for terms. And we all know how that works out with Grant. How how often does a shell fall? I mean, give us a sense of It depends what... on the day. I mean, there could be days where uh, 20, 30 in an hour. Uh, there could be days when one an hour just to make sure we're still watching you. We're still paying attention. So it depends on, on the weather, the climate, the 
availability of ammunition. And from what kind of weaponry and situated where are the shells coming? Is it from the water or no, is it from the no, land? No, th- these are not being fired by gunboats. These are, this is uh, uh, Army artillery units that are outside the lines and firing over the Confederate defensive lines into the city, pretty much at random. They're not targeting particular targets. They're, it's terror bombing. Yeah, yeah. One remarkable thing is, and I'm going to hearken back to the collection a few times here before we take your questions, is that a newspaper actually continues to publish through all this. And I've I've written about this. It's called the Vicksburg Daily Citizen. And not only published, but published in a defiant way. Um, On July 2nd, um, the, the... the publisher writes that um, the great Ulysses, the Yankee Generalissimo, I don't even know they knew that term there, is outside the city and promising to dine in the city before the 4th of July. And he says, Ulysses must get to the city before he dines in it. The way to cook a rabbit is first to catch the rabbit. <laughs> um, this is fascinating. So... Not to get ahead of the story, but you all know what the ending is, that the Union, Union troops will enter the city. When they enter the city, one of the first things they do, and this is another reminder of the power of newspapers in the Civil War era, is they find the office of the Vicksburg Daily Citizen. Now, Grant is an old hand at destroying newspaper offices. He did it in Missouri when he was a younger general. They go to this office, and they actually redo the story on the bottom right of the page. By the way, I left out a major thing. This paper has become so scarce that this edition is printed on wallpaper. So if you look at the reverse, which I don't have here, it's on wallpaper. So this is what his soldiers, who included professional typesetters, no doubt, this is what they wrote. The banner of the Union now floats over Vicksburg. General Grant has caught the rabbit. He has dined in Vicksburg and brought his dinner with him. The daily citizen lives to see it. No more will it eulogize the luxury of mule meat and fricasseed chicken. I'm sorry, fricasseed, I ruined that. Fricasseed kitten. Sorry, I should have left it at chicken. For the last time, for the last time our newspaper appears on wallpaper, it will be valuable hereafter as a curiosity. So not only is it valuable as a curiosity, it's been faked so many times that people don't know whether they have real ones or fraudulent ones, but this is a real one. And, uh, and um, it's owned by this institution, which is remarkable. So how does it end? Well, uh, Pemberton realizes he has no option but to talk to Grant, and so he, they, they arrange to meet. Uh, and, of course, it turns out to be what else? It's the 4th of July, Right. And so he goes out to meet Grant, and he asks for Chairman Grant, says, well, it's clear, unconditional surrender. And, he, and what Grant, what Pemberton had expected was that he would be allowed to, to march his army out of the city, that he would surrender the city, but his army would, 30,000 men, would be allowed to march out and fight another day. Grant, no, no, no. They will lay down their arms. They will all be prisoners of war. I will accept parole. They can go home. Parole, by the way, is one of those things that shows you this is still a 19th century war. The idea was the general says, on behalf of all my men, I promise, I swear, we will not bear arms against you unless we're exchanged. And in the meantime, we'll all go home and behave ourselves. 
And they did, if you can imagine. Well, something. happy to get out of it, I well, suppose. Well, they were. Um, but, uh, but violating parole, going back to fight after, without having been paroled was considered a traitorous act, and that was a, you can be hanged for that. But in any case, so, so Pemberton is really upset, and Grant takes him by the arm. And he says, let's go sit over here, and, and let's let our generals talk it out. They can work out the details. How have you been? How's the wife and kids? You know? <laughs> so again, Grant is uh, using those diplomatic skills to ease a very tense situation. The lesser generals agree among themselves what the protocols will be. They will be allowed to march out with their colors, but not with their arms. They will all be paroled. They will be allowed to go home. The city will be turned over to the Union, and that is the end of that. But it happened on the 4th of July, and for a hundred years thereafter, Vicksburg never celebrated the 4th of July. So I know that um, Grant made sure after Appomattox, uh, two years later, that one of the first acts of mercy, in addition to the you know, letting the soldiers go home, was to feed them because they were starving. How did he deal with the starvation? He did. He, issued, he issued rations, union rations. I mean, one of the things I thought you were going to say, were they allowed to keep their horses? And I would say, well, they already ate their horses. They ate their horses. <laughs> um, but he did issue union rations to, to the soldiers so that they could make their way home. So there was that. So there's an irony here. This should have been one of the greatest and most widely reported and celebrated triumphs of the Union military, of all the Union military efforts. However, because of a trick of fate and the slowness of news getting from the West to the New York City and Washington newspapers, it wasn't so. So let, let them all in on the, on the joke here. Well, July the 4th, 1863, is the day Robert E. Lee began his retreat from Gettysburg. It's the day after Pickett's charge. So the headlines on the 5th of, of July are Gettysburg, right. not Vicksburg. And, and the 4th, of course, it precedes it. And yeah. Lincoln is, even on the 5th and 6th, is calling for celebrations of General Meade's great triumph at Gettysburg, which is widely reported by journalists. There are tons of journalists embedded at Gettysburg. I don't know, very few, if any, during this siege. Almost none. And again, once the great moment happens, how do you get the news out? You don't. You find a way to get to a train. And So anyway, Grant is in a way deprived of this. And Lincoln doesn't issue congratulations to the Western Army until... For a week. Yeah, it's a week So, later. you know, it's old news by then. I wanted to show um, I wanted to show two other images in the collection. Um, and Craig alluded to uh, Jefferson Davis's plantation and how close it was. This is a sketch we found um, when we were doing the book The Civil War in 50 Objects at the New York Historical Society. It looks nondescript, and what it is supposed to show is really um, embedded, in a way, in the caption that the artist wrote. Um, He says, uh, African-Americans marching into Grant's uh, lines at Vicksburg. Um, Arrival at Chickasaw Bayou of Jefferson Davis's Negroes from his plantation on the Mississippi River. Why is that important? Well, for one thing, 
it demonstrates the power of the Emancipation Proclamation, whose reputation has sort of been downgraded in recent years. And it becomes all too apparent when it's transformed into a newspaper illustration, also in the, in the collection. 137 enslaved people heard that General Grant was nearby. The plantation was undefended. They simply marched to their own freedom, protected at that moment and thereafter by the Emancipation Proclamation. Jefferson Davis was furious. How could these people live, leave the great situation that I had set up for them? <laughs> they had food. In the grace. people in Vicksburg didn't have food. So this is what Frank Leslie's newspaper wrote. And it's true. I offer it again as period evidence of the power of the proclamation. Here was proof that step by step, mile by mile, plantation by plantation, the proclamation worked. Wherever Union soldiers traveled, slaves were liberated. The president of the Confederacy may call the role of his slaves, but the answer will not come. It's a great line. So I'm going to turn and hand off these questions to my friend, Professor Simons. Okay. Did Grant's kind treatment of Pemberton's troops at Vicksburg help in obtaining Lee's surrender at Appomattox? I don't know. Uh, I think that uh, Lee, would, Lee surrendered because he felt he had no military recourse at Appomattox. It wasn't that he thought to himself, oh, well, Grant, after all, was kind to the previous <coughs> army that surrendered to him, so I can expect good terms. He was pleased to get good terms. But Lee was a professional soldier. Lee would have continued that fight if he thought he had any reasonable way to continue the fight. So I doubt very strongly if that thought went through his head that uh, because of the example set at Vicksburg, I can expect good terms here, so I will surrender. So and Grant is so. sort of developing a reputation by this point as a really, I mean, his, his enemies and critics are calling him a butcher. And he's more known for being relentless than for being forgiving, wouldn't you say? I think that's generally true, and Sherman the same way. But of course, Sherman's attitude, as John Marslack would say if he was sitting here with us, is that uh, Sherman frequently said, you know, I will fight you as ferociously as I can while you bear arms. As soon as you lay those arms down, I will be the best friend you ever had. So, so here's a good one. Did the North's greater industrial strength give them a greater naval advantage when it came to constructing ships? Absolutely. A thousand times yes. Um, there are many ways to measure the index of military power in the 19th century, railroad mileage, factory output, gross domestic product, and so on, but certainly shipbuilding is one of them and probably among the first. The Union could not only build an ironclad warship with a revolving turret, it could build 50 or 60 of them. It, the first ironclad warships were not the Monitor and the Virginia in Hampton Roads that famously fought the duel of the ironclads. They were in the Mississippi River where an ironmonger named James Eads put iron uh, armor on uh, river steamboats. And so some of the ships that attacked Fort Henry and Fort Donaldson were armored warships. The Confederacy could not match that. They used wooden ships with rams on the front and tried to crash themselves into it, uh, almost like kamikaze ships. So, yes, the superior industrial uh, capability of the Union played an enormous role in making sure the Union maintained naval superiority on the inland rivers. We don't ordinarily like to have the bubble burst of the primacy of the monitor, however, because Sorry. it was made in my 
family's ancestral sure. home in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, so we like to keep it uppermost uh, in mind. Um, so we know you, you've, you've talked a bit about Union River strategy uh, in the Naval War, controlling the Mississippi from source to whatever that other part Mouth. is called. Mouth. Um, this is why we're a good team. <laughs> um, and at sea, of course, there's the blockade, prevent supplies from coming right. in. What is the Confederate naval strategy for surviving the Civil War and becoming an independent nation? In almost all warfare from the 17th century on, the weaker naval power tries to get back at the stronger naval power by attacking its marine commerce. And vessels like the Alabama, the Shenandoah, the Florida, the Georgia were on the high seas attacking Union merchant shipping and doing a pretty good job of it. The Alabama by itself uh, burned 67 ships and elevated the uh, insurance rates. I mean, even if you're, if you're a merchant in New York and you send your ship to England and back with this cargo, even if you never see a Confederate raider, your profit margin is significantly reduced because your insurance rates are so much higher because of the depredations that are taking place elsewhere. So that's one way, attacking Union commerce. The other way is by being inventive, creative. Uh, the South were the first uh, along the coast that Virginia preceded the Monitor. The Monitor was a reaction to the Virginia because they took a, a steamship that had been sunk, raised it, patched it up, armored it, and sent it out to sea. They were the first ones to experiment with a submarine, the Hunley, which is the first... A submarine to sink a warship at sea when it sunk the Housatonic off Charleston. So by being creative and inventing, inventing, for lack of a better term, gimmick weapons, because they cannot match the Union in the conventional weapons of naval warfare, they tried to... In, and, the, and the last one that I'll mention was what were the Union called infernal machines, but the South called torpedoes, but which today we call mines. They planted mines, not only in the rivers, but along the coasts, and those mines did a lot of damage to the Union ships on the blockade. Here's a question whose answer I don't know. Is it true that Confederate General Pemberton asked General Joe Johnston for more troops, and Johnston refused? Oh, uh, how much time do we have? Um, As it turns out, coincidentally, I'm the biographer of Joe Johnston. So Pemberton was way out of line here. Um, The way this worked was that Joe Johnson commanded the entire theater, including Pemberton's army. Pemberton's army was called the Army of Mississippi, and there was also an army of Tennessee, and Johnson had command of both. And what Johnston wanted was for Pemberton to leave Vicksburg, come out into the open field, unify his army with the Army of Tennessee so that together they could annihilate this impertinent grant. Pemberton said, I'm not leaving Vicksburg. The president wants me to defend this city. His plantation is right over there. I am not leaving. So Johnson said, but I'm ordering you to leave. He said, no, no, no. You come here. You bring your army into Vicksburg. When somebody asked Grant about this, what if Joe Johnson tries to fight his way in? Grant said, well, I would let him do it and then make sure that he never gets out. I mean, that's just putting another one in the trap. So, so there was a, a Confederate army, a smallish one, under Joe Johnson outside the city, and Pemberton was furious because he didn't try to fight his way in. Johnson was furious because Pemberton wouldn't obey orders and fight his way out. So Grant bagged them both. So whose fault was that? That's a rhetorical question. Not, yes, right. <laughs> but not Joe Johnston's. How you know? Here's an interesting speculation. 
Is there an analogy to be made between the assaults at Vicksburg and later at Cold Harbor? That is, both failed attacks and uh, that are followed by sieges resulting in the capitulation of an army. Was Vicksburg, I mean, I will add, I will turn the question in a way, was Vicksburg a rehearsal for Grant's M.O. at Cold Harbor? Well, I think yes, in a number of ways. I think what they have in common is this. Grant knew that his soldiers wanted to win this war, and the sooner the better, the sooner it was over, the sooner they could get home, and the quickest way to get it done was to get across no man's land and kill the bad guys. So they did not like sieges. Sieges were uncomfortable, they were muddy, the food was bad, it rained, you're in a hole in the ground, it's it's no good. Let's go get him. And I think outside Vicksburg, he believed, so he said in his memoir subsequently, and I take him at his word, that if he didn't demonstrate to them that this was not going to work, they wouldn't have accepted the siege. And he said the same thing about Cold Harbor. He did say that he regretted the second attack at Cold Harbor. The first one, he said it was necessary to demonstrate that we can't get through and have to go around again. So I think to a certain extent, Grant, the psychological commander, is, is dealing with his own soldiers by saying, let me show you why we have to do what I'm going to order you to do next. It's pretty callous, but I do think they're connected in that way. I mean, part of, it points in a way to, again, his relentlessness. Yes. He, if he doesn't get his target by sweeping action, he will be patient enough yeah. to use his resources. Well, you say relentless, but uh, he didn't order a third, a fourth, no. a fifth, a sixth attack, I meant as, the goal for example, is... Burnside right. did at Fredericksburg. Right. But he did right. once or twice. Yeah. But his goal, he did not say, I'm, I'm crossing this off as an unrealizable goal. No. He found another way to do it. Right. So here's something that we didn't discuss, but it's always worth discussing. You talked about a bend in the river. We're going to talk a little bit about a bender in Grant's record. Ah. So about his drinking problem and whether it manifested during this period and whether it might have interfered with an earlier potential for success at Vicksburg. Um, I, I, I will try one to famous channel bender John here. Yeah. yeah, one um, famous bender. John has been asked this question before. I happened to be with him when he got questions like that. And John always begins by talking about Grant's early years as a first lieutenant and a captain on the western frontier. When he was without his wife, Julia was back home, was an unaccompanied billet, as we say in the military today. So he's out in one of these godforsaken western forts that you see in John Ford movies with the Palisade, and they go out on these dusty patrols, and there's nothing to do. And he drank. And occasionally he drank too much. And the problem with Grant wasn't that he drank all the time, is that when he did drink, he couldn't hold it. And it was obvious that he'd been drinking. Uh, So he got a reputation as somebody who couldn't hold his liquor. But because of that, he stopped. And during almost all of the war, in fact, he had a staff member named Rollins, John Rollins, whose job it was to make sure that Grant didn't ever get off on one of these benders. And there's Uh, some evidence that once he did drink some, and again, not a lot, but being Grant, it showed because he didn't tolerate it well. And that one example is the one his political opponents point to. Um, But John would say that that it's notable by its exception, that almost never. I think in all fairness, Chernow disagrees a little bit with John's theory that Grant simply couldn't hold liquor, I think Chernow has, his view is that he's a genuine alcoholic, alcoholic but he has amazing, amazing control. Well, he stopped during the presidency, right. for sure. Right. Um, were, um, 
Were gunboats a new invention of the Civil War as well? And how did the, how did the U.S. use them? And how do they compare to previous ships yeah. of war? Well, gunboats, uh, by definition, are much smaller than conventional ships of war. Ships of war in the 19th century had early on rows of guns along the sides. Starboard and port, they had broadside guns. Later on, when the guns got bigger and bigger and heavier and heavier, they would put them on the bow and the stern and they would pivot, more like what turrets are in warships today. Uh, Gunboats, by definition, are much smaller. You usually have one gun and you point it by pointing the vessel. Uh, Gunboats were used in Thomas Jefferson's Navy to defend the coast during the years just before the War of 1812, not very successfully. Gunboats operated on the river. They were always wooden uh, and propelled by ore. But now you have steam and you have iron armor and you have much higher caliber guns. So the gunboats that fought in the American Civil War are a much greater capability. They can go upriver much faster than an ore-powered vessel. Uh, so, so they're new in that respect. It's not that it's an entirely new type, but it's a modification of a type that's been around a long time. So, unavoidably glimpsing the microphone, which is always a signal to us, um, I want to close with, as I often do when I can, with, with the commander-in-chief um, and Lincoln confronting two victories in July 1860 through sixty-three wrote letters to each of his successful generals. One to the hero of Gettysburg, General Meade. And what he told him is that he was bitterly disappointed that he failed to pursue General Lee's retreating army back into Virginia. He was within your easy grasp, Lincoln complains. The war could have been ended. Instead, it will be prolonged indefinitely. And Lincoln says he's greatly disturbed. A really rough assessment, so rough, considering the great news value of Gettysburg to Union morale, that Lincoln, in the end, never signed or sent the letter to Meade. Around the same time, he writes to Grant, and I think it's a remarkable letter. Um, He says, I do not remember that you and I ever met personally. I write this now as a grateful acknowledgement for the almost inestimable service you have done the country. Then he goes into this long analysis of the campaign. When you first reached Vicksburg, I never had any faith, except the general hope that you knew better than I, that your first expedition could succeed. When you got below and took this and went up there, I thought you should go down the river in another place. When you turned northward, I feared it was a mistake. And this is how he ended the letter. I now wish to make the personal acknowledgement that you were right and I was wrong. Just an extraordinary thing. Um, I think we've illuminated or hope that we've illuminated a bit more about Grant and joint actions and relation to Lincoln and why Vicksburg is so important and underappreciated and how great this collection is. So thank you till next time. Thank you for listening. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, Follow the New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NY History, or visit us at nyhistory.org.